Section 10 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 3, Part 4. Mary Beatrice was, after a lapse of nearly five years, once more about to become a mother, to the extreme joy of the Scotch, who were desirous that the royal babe should be born among them, fondly anticipating that it would be a boy and their future sovereign. King Charles, however, determined that his sister-in-law should lie in, in London, and this resolution, after all, seems to have been the true and natural cause of his recalling both her and his brother to court. The weather being stormy, the duke was contented to leave his consort and his daughter Anne with their ladies at Holyrood. On the 6th of March, His Royal Highness embarked at Leith, in his own yacht, attended by the Earl of Peterborough, Churchill, and many persons of rank of both nations. After a stormy passage, he landed at Yarmouth on the 10th of March, and was received with what Lord Peterborough calls, the applause and duties of that town and the adjacent counties, and entertained with as noble a dinner as could be provided on so short a notice, a reaction of popular feeling having taken place in james's favour he was greeted with acclamations wherever he came charles detained him eight weeks and then sent him back with a little fleet to convoy his duchess and the princess anne to london mary beatrice had borne the absence of her husband heavily according to her own account of her feelings on that occasion in her confidential conversations with the nuns of chalot some additional particulars connected with the loss of gloucester were at the same time recorded from her own lips speaking of james she says the seamen loved him passionately and we had a great proof of their attachment as well as that of the nobility while we were at edinburgh the duke of york having been sent for on business by king charles i was left in an advanced stage of pregnancy at edinburgh i felt myself so greatly depressed in his absence that unable to struggle against the melancholy that oppressed me, I wrote at last to tell him so, on which he determined to come by sea to fetch me. It is necessary to leave the simple narrative of James's consort, to collate it with the particulars of the voyage from the letters of the survivors. At nine o'clock in the morning of May 4th, the Duke embarked in Margate Roads, on board the Gloucester frigate, which had been got ready hastily, too hastily, perhaps, for sea. A little after eleven, the whole squadron got under way. The weather was wet and foggy, and the passage slow. It was not till half-past one at noon, the following day, that they came in sight of Dunwich steeples on the Suffolk coast. Well did the Royal Admiral know that coast, where he had twice defeated the fleets of Holland. His nautical skill and experience of the track led him to warn the pilot that the course he was taking was attended with danger and to order him to stand farther out to sea if james had guided the helm himself the vessel would have been saved but no sooner had he retired to rest than the obstinate and self-conceited pilot tacked again and at half-past five on the morning of sunday may sixth grounded the ship on the dangerous sand called the lemon and oar about twelve leagues past yarmouth the duke awoke with the knocks of the foundering vessel and as soon as he could get his clothes on hurried on deck to inquire how matters were a terrible blow had just struck off the rudder eight feet water were in the hold 
sir john barry the captain urged the duke to have his barge hoisted to preserve his royal person his highness continues sir john being unwilling to have any boat hoisted hoping as i did that the ship might be saved but the water increasing and no manner of hope left but the ship must be lost i did again request his royal highness to go away in his boat to the yacht the boat was hoisted out and his highness took as many persons of quality in the boat with him as she could carry the conduct of the royal admiral on this occasion has it is now well known been strangely misrepresented by burnett and many other writers who have copied his statement that the duke got into a boat and took care of his dogs and some unknown persons who were taken from that earnest care of his to be his priests the long-boat went off with few though she might have carried above eighty more than she did though burnett is the textbook of a party by whom any attempt to contradict his erroneous assertions is considered a strong symptom of popery it is only proper to correct the unauthenticated story of one who was not present by the evidence of several efficient witnesses who were it is worthy of attention how closely the simple verbal narrative of the wife of james agrees with the statements of sir john barry lord dartmouth and the earl of peterborough but not surprising since she had it from the lips of her husband and those very persons in the passage says mary beatrice the ship struck upon a sandbank foundered and began to fill with water the duke of york was instantly called upon from all sides to save himself in his shallop which would take him to one of the yachts he refused wishing not to forsake the perishing bark but more than six feet of water being in the hold they compelled him to leave her to preserve himself the respect and attachment they had for him was such that not one of those who were in the vessel thought of taking care of his own life till that of the duke was in security the first that began to leave the ship were those he called to him these were not priests as we have good evidence the only priest whose name has yet been discovered among the passengers of the fatal gloucester who escaped a watery grave was pere ronchet the almoner of the duchess of york who saved himself by embracing a plank as his royal mistress told the nuns of chalot and as she of course formed a very different estimate of the value of the lives of the ecclesiastics of her own church from what dr burnett did she would in all probability have recorded it as a great merit in her dear lord if he had manifested any particular solicitude for their preservation the duke's boat held but six persons besides the rowers including himself the first person he called was his favorite churchill no priest certainly and if burnett meant to class him among the dogs he forgot that gratitude and fidelity were inherent values of the canine race james called for the earl of roxburgh and lord o'brien but neither obeyed the friendly summons the earl of winton and two bedchamber men were in the boat the earl of aberdeen then lord haddo says fountain hall shared the danger and escape of james upon the lemon and oar fifth of may sixteen eighty two the duke of york was so anxious for his safety that he called out save my lord chancellor which was the first public annunciation of his appointment to that high office the government of the ship being lost proceeds sir john barry and every one crying for help yet amidst all this disorder and confusion i could not but observe the great duty the poor seaman had for the preservation of his royal highness's person 
when the barge was hoisted out and lowered down into the water not one man so much as proffered to run into her but in the midst of all their affliction and dying condition did rejoice and thank god his royal highness was preserved there were as many in the shallop as she could without danger contain and colonel churchill took upon himself the task of guarding her from the intrusion of supernumeraries a caution not in vain for an overloaded boat was upset close by that in which the duke and his little company were when his royal highness saw the marquess of montrose struggling with the waves he insisted that he should be received into the shallop it was objected against as attended with peril of life to all but regardless of selfish considerations he pulled him in with his own hand nor was this the only instance of humanity by which james distinguished himself on that occasion a violin player swam so close to the boat as to grasp the side imploring them for god's sake to save his life the duke ordered that he should be taken into the boat his companions protested that it was already overloaded and would have had the wretched suppliant beaten off with the oars fie exclaimed the duke who knew him he is but a poor fiddler let us try to save him the savage instincts of self-preservation which had prompted the crew of that frail bark to reject the agonizing prayer of a perishing fellow-creature yielded to the manly appeal of the duke in his behalf the dripping musician was admitted at once to share and by his presence to diminish the chances of the escape of the heir of the crown the future victor of blenheim and their companions in peril they reached the merry yacht in safety when the duke commanding her to anchor sent out all her boats and those of the happy return to save the men in the foundering ship but before any service could be done his royal highness and the rest to their inexpressible grief saw her sink as for the person whom james at the imminent risk of his own life and the lives of the gentlemen who were with him had preserved from a watery grave he who while he clung to the boat's side had heard the momentous parley between the duke of york and those who were bent on excluding him had taken umbrage forsooth at the terms in which his royal preserver had succeeded in moving their compassion only a poor fiddler the service was not sufficient to excuse the use of an epithet which vulgar pride construed into a contempt james feeling a regard for one whose life he had preserved continued to patronize him but the insect bore him deadly malice repaid his benefits with the basis ingratitude he leagued himself with his political libelers became a spy and a calumniator and on the landing of the prince of orange was one of the first who offered his services such as they were to that potentate as to burnett's assertion touching the dogs which has been repeated by so many subsequent writers lord dartmouth says i believe his reflection upon the duke for the care of his dogs to be as ill-grounded for i remember a story which was in every one's mouth at that time of a struggle that happened for a plank between sir charles scarborough and the duke's dog mumper which convinces me that dogs were left to take care of themselves as he did if there were any more on board which i never heard till the bishop's story-book was published the duke of york performed the rest of his voyage in the happy return and landed at leith the next day sunday may seventh at eight o'clock in the evening and came once again says lord peterborough into the arms of his incomparable duchess who was half dead though she saw him alive at the fears of that which though it was now past she had heard was once so near 
it appears however from the following interesting particulars which were recorded from her own lips that mary beatrice was not aware of the peril in which her husband had been involved till informed of it by himself the duke she said though almost beside himself with grief at the calamity which had been attended with the loss of so many lives had nevertheless sufficient presence of mind to prevent any of his followers from preceding him to holyrood abbey lest the news of the fatal catastrophe of the gloucester should be told too suddenly to her so as to alarm and agitate her which might have been attended with dangerous results in her present situation the approach of the little fleet had of course been observed from the heights above edinburgh and she was in momentary expectation of his arrival he hastened to her instantly on landing but for fear of surprising her made his equerry mr griffin enter first to prepare her for his appearance the duchess seeing that gentleman alone exclaimed in great consternation where is the duke he is in the antechamber madam replied griffin the next moment james entered and announced his own arrival mary beatrice was so overpowered at the thoughts of the dreadful peril from which her lord had narrowly escaped that she could not restrain her tears and for years afterwards she wept and shuddered whenever she thought of it the great rejoicings accompanied by bonfires and illuminations took place in edinburgh on account of his royal highness's escape and several spirited popular songs and congratulatory poems were published on the occasion in some of those there were allusions to the hopes which the situation of the duchess was calculated to excite among the numerous party who were anxious to see the royal line and name of stuart continued by a male heir the following verse from a song by matt taubman called york and albany contains a graceful compliment to the duchess the wandering dove that was sent forth to find some landing near when england's ark was tossed on floods of jealousy and fear returns with olive branch of joy to set the nation free from the whiggish rage that would destroy great york and albany great persuasions were used to deter mary beatrice from undertaking a journey to england at all under these circumstances and more especially to dissuade her from a sea voyage but notwithstanding the terror which the calamitous loss of nearly two hundred lives in the fatal gloucester had excited among her ladies she declared her determination to accompany her lord who wished to adhere to the original plan of returning to england by sea she would neither consent to remain in scotland for her accouchment without him nor listen to any arrangement for a long overland journey by herself whatever dangers he might be exposed to she said it was her wish to share them and that she should esteem herself happier in danger or trouble with him than in ease and security without him the duke of york took a solemn leave of the lords of his majesty's council and also of the authorities of the good town of edinburgh on the twelfth of may a few days after he with his faithful duchess and the princess anne proceeded in state to leith and embarked in the happy return they were attended to the water's edge by a great concourse of people of all degrees and no little wonder was expressed at the courage of their royal highnesses in venturing to go by sea after the duke's recent peril and narrow escape from a watery grave it was to facilitate the embarkation of the duchess of york whose situation rendered james very solicitous for her safety 
that the plan of the accommodation chair and pulley now so general for ladies was first devised in this simple machine which she described minutely to her cloistered friends at chalot mary beatrice was drawn up the side of the vessel and carried into her cabin her principal lady-in-waiting penelope countess of peterborough whose nephew lord o'brien had perished in the gloucester was so greatly terrified at the idea of the voyage that she begged to go in another ship lest she should infect her royal highness with her fears and agitate her with her tears and cries for my part said mary beatrice when relating these particulars in the days of her widowhood and exile i feared nothing i saw the king and i seemed to have power to confront every peril alas added she sighing i often stand self-condemned before god for my want of love and confidence in him when i think of my feelings toward the king my husband he was pursued she the most intrepid of men and looked on danger with perfect coolness as was said of him by monsieur le prince de Condé and monsieur de turine the voyage was safely performed on the twenty sixth they arrived at the buoy in the gun fleet of which their majesties who were at windsor being informed by express they came with all the loyal part of their court to putney where they took barge and went down the river to meet and welcome their royal highnesses at erith the joyful encounter took place where his majesty's barge being laid alongside the auspiciously named vessel in which the royal exiles had returned from scotland were received on board amidst the thunders of artillery and the joyful gratulations with which the duke was greeted by his royal brother and all present in consequence of his almost miraculous escape in his recent peril at sea the king also expressed his love and esteem for the duchess for whom he always had a great regard and on the present occasion considered her worthy of more sympathy than her lord he knew how much she had suffered by her residence in a northern climate and honored her for her conjugal devotion as well as for her conjugal patience under some grievances which were too well known to the whole court the royal brothers with their consorts proceeded in a sort of triumph on their pleasant homeward progress up the thames to whitehall where they landed amidst the acclamations of the crowded shores having been saluted all the way up the river by the ships in the roads and the guns from the tower they proceeded next to arlington house in the park where they were entertained by the earl and countess with a magnificent banquet the lord mayor and aldermen with many worthy citizens came the same day to offer their congratulations to their royal highnesses on their happy return in the evening the city blazed with illuminations and bonfires the bells rang and all the tokens of popular rejoicing were expressed these rejoicings were echoed in edinburgh as soon as the news of the safe arrival of the duke and duchess were received in the good town of which the following traces have recently been discovered among the exchequer records by alexander macdonald esq paid to robert kennedy ten pounds sterling for two bonfires twenty ninth of may and the first of june upon the news of their royal highness's safe arrival in london more forty four pounds scots for wine and glasses as within then following the vouchers for their outlay from which we find that the glasses were broken by the loyal topers and that the bonfires were kindled in the abbey close and on arthur's seat the grandest station for such a beacon of joy that the three realms could boast 
the first thing that occupied james's attention after his return to england was the condition of the widows of the officers and seamen who had perished in the wreck of the gloucester to those of the common seamen he ordered eleven months pay to be dispersed and that those of the officers should be pensioned as if their husbands had died in battle besides presenting each with a donation from his private property which was received says a contemporary biographer by the poor women with many thanks and reiterated prayers for his royal highness's long life health and prosperity james and mary beatrice were now established in their own royal house at st james's palace once more and their prospects wore a flattering brightness for a time mary beatrice had always been a favorite with the people to which her beauty and purity of conduct contributed not a little she was now only four and twenty and the charms of her early youth had ripened into matron dignity and grace her first appearance at the theatre with the duke drew forth the most rapturous applause and was celebrated by the poetry of otway and dryden in the prologue and epilogue of the play that was performed on that occasion a few days afterwards the laureate addressed the following elegant lines to her royal highness on her return when factious rage to cruel exile drove the queen of beauty and the court of love the muses droop with their forsaken arts and the sad cupids broke their useless darts love could no longer after beauty stay but wandered northward to the verge of day but now the illustrious nymph returned again brings every grace triumphant in her train the wandering nereids though they raised no storm followed her passage to behold her form far from her side flew faction strife and pride and envy did but look on her and died three gloomy years against this day were set but this one mighty sung hath cleared the debt for her the weeping heavens became serene for her the ground is clad in cheerful green for her the nightingales are taught to sing and nature has for her delayed the spring the muse resumes her long-forgotten lays and love restored his ancient realm surveys recalls our beauties and revives our plays his waste dominions peoples once again and from her presence dates his second reign but awful charms on her fair forehead sit dispensing what she never will admit pleasing yet cold like cynthia's silver beam the people's wonder and the poet's theme distempered zeal sedition cankered hate no more shall vex the church or tear the state no more shall faction civil discords move or only discords of too tender love discords that only this dispute shall bring who best shall love the duke or serve the king the manifestation of popular favor with which the royal exiles were greeted on their return to england was only like a burst of sunshine through dark clouds when the thunder growls ominously in the distance the exclusionists were defeated but not conquered they were outnumbered but they continued to wage their war with the base weapons of libels and political squibs hitherto the duchess had been spared from open attacks though more than one oblique shaft had been aimed in her direction but now her situation was to furnish the grounds of a false accusation as her last child had been a boy it was confidently hoped by the yorkists that she would bring the duke a son the orange party exasperated at the idea of these sanguine anticipations being realized circulated malicious reports that a plot was in preparation to deprive the protestant heiress of the crown of her place in the succession by the imposition of a spurious child 
in scotland these injurious rumors were indignantly noticed by a now forgotten lyricist of that period in the following elegant stanzas with which he concludes a series of mythological compliments to york's lovely duchess see led by her great admiral she is come laden with such a blessing home as doth surmount our joy and with a happy omen speaks the princely boy heaven grant him live our wonted peace and glory to retrieve and by a just renown within its lawful centre fix the crown then smile great britain's genius once again the music's daughter's lofty numbers sing and every beauteous nymph and loyal swain their grateful tribute bring and only impious men that happy birth contemn mary beatrice felt however more than usual apprehension as her hour drew nigh and entreated king charles to permit her to have the comfort and support of her mother's presence the king ever indulgent to his fair sister-in-law not only acceded to her wish but wrote with his own hand to the duchess of modena acquainting her with her daughter's desire for her company and inviting her to his court the duchess of modena being then in flanders came in great haste to avoid all troublesome ceremonies which might create delay no sooner was it known that she was in london than the party that had formed a base confederacy to stigmatize the birth of the infant in case it proved to be a son endeavored to poison the minds of the people by circulating a report that the duchess of modena only came to facilitate the popish design of introducing a boy to supplant the female heirs of the crown in the event of the duchess of york giving birth to a daughter thus imputing to the duchess of modena the absurd intention of depriving her own grandchild of the dignity of a princess of great britain and the next place in the regal succession after her two elder sisters for the sake of substituting a boy whom they pretended she had brought from holland for that purpose so early was the determination betrayed of impugning any male issue that might be born of the marriage of james the second and mary of modena by the faction which six years afterwards succeeded in some degree in stigmatizing the birth of their second son it is also remarkable that circumstances favor the projected calumny for mary beatrice who did not expect her accouchment till the end of august was unexpectedly brought to bed on the fifteenth of that month only three days after the arrival of the duchess of modena she had so quick a time that very few of the witnesses whose presence was deemed necessary to verify the birth of the infant could be summoned but as it proved a girl nothing more was said about the dutch boy or the fictitious pregnancy of the royal mother great rejoicings were made in edinburgh for the safety of the duchess of which the following amusing document lately discovered among the exchequer records of scotland is one of the vestiges at edinburgh twenty second of august sixteen eighty two received from sir william sharp his majesty's cash keeper the sum of five pounds starlin and that for the bonfire set up in the abbey close and on arthur's seat on account of her royal highness being safely brought to bed i say received by me robert kennedy also received for wine and glasses spent at the said bonfire the sum of three pounds starling i say received by me robert kennedy the appearance of a comet the day of the infant's birth was supposed to prognosticate a great and glorious destiny for the little princess who was baptized by henry compton bishop of london by the names of charlotte maria her sponsors were the duke of ormond and the countesses of clarendon and arundel 
the maternal joy of mary beatrice was as usual doomed to be succeeded by maternal grief the babe whose birth had been so eagerly anticipated after an ephemeral existence of about eight weeks died suddenly in a convulsive fit she was interred in the vault of mary queen of scots the prince of orange wrote a letter to his uncle the duke of york expressive of his sympathy which however deceitful appears to have been very gratifying to the bereaved parent unless james uses the following expressions in bitter sarcasm well aware as he was of william's treacherous practices against him he says i had yours of the twenty-third at newmarket before i came thence but could not answer it sooner than now i see by it you were sensibly touched with the loss i had of my little daughter which is but what i had reason to expect from you that are so concerned at all that happens to me no important event in the personal history of mary beatrice occurred between the death of the princess charlotte and the accession of her lord to the throne of england it is certain that she never interfered in political intrigues when duchess of york and for that reason her name is a blank in public history during the first twelve years of her residence in england her court at st james's palace was always magnificent and far more orderly than that at whitehall gregorio letty the historiographer to charles the second gives the following list of the english ladies of whom her household was composed in the year sixteen eighty three penelope o'brien countess of peterborough speaks french well salary one thousand six hundred crowns this lady had been with her ever since her marriage susanna armine lady Bellasis. the reader will remember that this lady had been honourably wooed by the duke of york for his wife soon after the death of his first duchess and as he could not obtain his brother's consent to the marriage he had vindicated her character from all aspersion by making her lady of the bedchamber to his young consort mary beatrice d'este who never expressed the slightest jealousy of her the countess of rosecommon was another of the ladies of her bedchamber her six maids of honour were francis walsingham catherine fraser anne killigrew anne kingsmill catherine wallers and catherine sedley the last with a salary of eight hundred pounds she was an object of great uneasiness to her royal highness on account of her illicit tie with the duke lady harrison held the office of mother of the maids lady jones was chamber keeper her bedchamber women were mrs margaret dawson who had been in the service of anne hyde duchess of york with a salary of six hundred crowns lady bromley ditto lady wentworth lady boucher and lady turner the household of mary beatrice had much higher salaries than those of her royal sister-in-law queen catherine but the duke's economy enabled his consort to be generous and it is doubtful if her ladies had any perquisites early in the year sixteen eighty four the duke of york was reinstated in his post of lord admiral on which occasion the first jacobite song was written and set to music it was entitled the royal admiral let titus and patience stir up a commotion their plotting and swearing shall prosper no more now gallant old jamie commands on the ocean and mighty charles keeps them in awe on the shore jamie the valiant the champion royal his own and the monarch's rival withstood the bane and the terror of those the disloyal who slew his loved father and thirst for his blood york the great admiral ocean's defender the joy of our navy the dread of its foes 
the lawful successor what upstart pretender shall dare in our isle the true heir to oppose jamie who quelled the proud foe on the ocean and rode the sole conqueror over the main to this gallant hero let all pay devotion for england her admiral sees him again mary beatrice was attacked with a sudden alarming illness in the latter end of may the same year in the absence of her lord who had been summoned by the king to attend a council at windsor as soon as the duke heard of her illness he hastened to her but the danger was over by the time he arrived in a letter dated may thirtieth james relates the symptoms of her malady to the prince of orange adding but now god be thanked she is quite well of that and free from a feverish distemper which came with it and i hope will be well enough to go to windsor by the end of next week it was during this sojourn at windsor that the duke of york wrote the following letter to his daughter henrietta lady waldgrave windsor june ninth sixteen eighty four till the duchess came to this place i did not know that sir charles waldgrave was dead or else i had written sooner to you to have told you i was sorry to hear of it and now that sir henry is come to the estate i must recommend to you both to be good managers and to be sure to live within what you have and be sure to have a care not to run at first now that the duchess is here i shall seldom go to london when i do i shall be sure to let you know it that you may meet me there to-morrow i go a-hunting and on friday to hampton court and at any time when you do come hither take care that it be not when i am abroad that you may not miss me let me hear from you and be assured i shall always be very kind to you james from the preceding letters of james to this young lady there is reason to think that his duchess would not at that time allow any public countenance to be given to his illegitimate offspring though she evinced no jealousy of the two princesses she afterwards took lady walgrave into her household after spending about three weeks with the court at windsor the duke and duchess of york returned for a few days to their own palace at st james's up to that period the friendly relations between mary beatrice and her stepdaughter the princess anne who had now been married several months to prince george of denmark had not been interrupted evidence of the regard which subsisted between them at this time appears in the following casual communication in a letter from james to the prince of orange dated june twenty sixth sixteen eighty four the duchess intends for tunbridge on monday my daughter the princess of denmark designs to go there also to keep her company but not to take the waters a season of peace and national prosperity had succeeded the crisis of the rye house plot the duke of york appeared firmly planted beside the throne and his influence guided the helm of state but his knowledge of business and love of economy suited not the views of the corrupt and selfish statesman of whom his brother's cabinet was composed in the beginning of the year sixteen eighty five a secret cabal was formed against him of which the leading members were the earls of sunderland and halifax lord godolphin and the duchess of portsmouth for the purpose of recalling the duke of monmouth and driving him and his consort into exile but before their plans were matured the unexpected death of the sovereign placed the rightful heir of the crown in a position to make them tremble they were trying to send us into banishment again says mary beatrice just before we became king and queen of england this event occurred on february sixth sixteen eighty five end of section ten